prayer line to God. We are all sinners saved by grace. You bow the knees of your heart and you say, God, I need your help. And guess what? He hears because he loves you. And don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to ask somebody to pray, but don't think for one second that someone's got a closer line to God because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So every single one of them, when you bow your head and bow your heart, you speak to the Lord, he hears no matter how messed up you are. So I'm here to tell you, you got saved and you were messed up. You're still messed up and God's doing a work in you. It's easy to blow off giving when you don't have much to give, but that's not what God's concerned about. As Pastor Daniel begins this study, Sacrifice, we begin by hearing about what God really cares about. It's not money or stuff, but it's your heart. Everything we have was given to us by Him. As we learn about sacrifice, we'll come to a new understanding about what that really means from our money to our time to our lives. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with part one of his message entitled, The Burnt Offering. All right, let's open up in our Bibles to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter one. As we begin what will ultimately be three series, verse by verse, through the book of Leviticus. Now, Most people, when they desire to read through the Bible from cover to cover, I would say probably 80% of the people get bogged down in the book of Leviticus. It's a challenging book to read. It's a challenging book to understand. But I'm here to tell you we're going to walk through it together. We're going to grow mightily. It's interesting that it's, it's called Leviticus. That's the most common name we have for it in the English. And Really, it comes from the, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, we call it the Septuagint, and mostly we call it that because 70 scholars, where you get the idea of 70 from Septuagint, got together to translate all of the sacred scriptures of all the different, different communities that were conquered by the Greeks. They translated everyone's scriptures into Greek, and so we get the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Right? And they call this, in effect, uh, Luiticon, which literally means that which pertains to the Levites. And so once, again, once the Romans took over, they wanted to translate everything into Latin. They just transliterated that word, and we get the word Leviticus. Again, that which pertains to the Levites. But what's interesting is that as a title, it's pretty misleading because the book doesn't deal with the Levite as much as it deals with the priests as a whole, of which a section of them are Levites. So our common Leviticus title is a slightly misleading. If you were to talk to somebody who reads the Bible in Hebrew or is Jewish, they'd call this book Vayikra, which is literally the very first word of the text, which means, and he called, which is the very first words there. So they titled the book just based on the first words, and he called, speaking of God calling to Moses. The Talmud, which was discussions of 
the Hebrew scriptures by the different rabbis, they call this the law of the sacrifice or the law of the priests. So that's how this book functions. Now, in regards to timeline, what's interesting is that in Exodus 19, we find that it's been about 10 weeks after the deliverance from Egypt and God gave his law, right? Now, the book of Numbers opens up with a census taken on the first day of the second month of the second year. That's Numbers chapter 1, which means that everything that goes on in the book of Leviticus occurs over one month's time. Because we ended the book of Exodus on the first, the first month of the second year. Numbers begins with on the second month of the second year. So the whole of the book of Leviticus takes place in a timeline of about a month. So we have a lot of chapters, 27 chapters, that happen in about a month's time. Now, what's interesting about this book is there's very little narrative. So we've been seeing a lot of what Bible teachers will call a narrative. So the idea of the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob, the story of Noah. Now you have, of course, the Mosaic story, the deliverance from Egypt. All these things are telling a story. Leviticus is different because it's literally just laws. There's almost no storytelling in it. It's God is saying, this is how things are meant to work. And so we're going to go through this. What's interesting, just by way of some background, the law of God, what we call the Torah, it primarily deals with three things. Civil laws, how they're meant to be organized kind of governmentally, ceremonial laws, how God is to be worshipped, and then moral laws, what God deems to be right and wrong. Now, what's interesting about that is that if you try and take these things and you place them into a contemporary context, you say to yourself, well, how do we apply these things? Because if there's, this is the way this newly redeemed people are supposed to organize themselves governmentally, does that all carry over today? And the answer would be no. Because America is not Israel 3,000 years ago. Now, don't get me wrong. Of those of you who've studied American history, you realize that a lot of our country's foundational principles were taken out of the Bible. But this was a specific way that God wanted his people to be organized, freshly delivered from Egypt. So the civil laws don't always pertain in the same way till today. Same thing with the ceremonial laws, which we're going to start studying tonight. God's plan was that the children of Israel worship him a specific way for a specific season. And we know that because when Jesus comes on the scene, he's saying, look, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And he's talking about his own body. So when we look at these different types of sacrifices, we have to realize that these are a forerunner a shadow, they are a placeholder until God's ultimate sacrifice comes. And that's an important thing to realize that God's plan for worship for the children of Israel was a placeholder until the fullness of time when he sends his own son. And that event does not invalidate what came before. It fulfills it all. So all these sacrifices that we're going to see, they're all designed to point us to God's ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So we have to realize that the ceremonial laws are also for a time and space. Now, of course, once you get to the moral laws, 
then things get a little bit interesting because you realize that morality, although dictated by governments, every law is a, is a law of morality. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just own it. I got a ticket last night. I did. I was going 70 down I-5 in a 60. Now, I think that's a little arbitrary. I mean, it's like I'm within, it's I-5, but I got a ticket. And I thought at the moment that I got pulled over that I was going to have a moral discussion with the state trooper. Because I want to be like, look, I'm, you know, I'm in the right lane. I mean, like, I'm going with the flow of traffic. And I tried a little bit. It just didn't happen. So you could pray for me. But like, you realize that that law, that sign on the side of the road, like, that's an arbitrary sign. Like, somebody decided that that is what the acceptable speed limit is. Is there any true, like, that is the proper speed limit? How many think that they should raise the speed limit on I-5? Yeah, see? There it is. I do too, especially in the section I got pulled over in. So governments decide what is legal or not, what is moral or not. But what's interesting about morality is that if God is a person, and if that person is perfect, then ultimately morality shouldn't be left alone to governments because there is a greater law, the law of God. And so as we look at these different moral things, we're going to have to make different applications because so much of the moral teaching still carries over today. They span every culture at all times. So but we'll look at that as we get into this. Now, the last thing that I want to bring out for you is this. As we look at these sacrifices, because this first section, I'm going to take seven chapters, not tonight, but the sacrifice. It shows five different types of sacrifices. Now, I'm here to tell you that the the meaning of these sacrifices is not unilateral, but it's multi-layered. These sacrifices mean a lot of different things. And so what I'm going to do is as we're going through them, I'm going to bring out a lot of these different meanings. Now, if you read different scholars, different writers, people always seem to have, this is the one place I come down on. So, so like one thing they talk about is that the sacrifice is it's propitiation. It's appeasing an angry God right? And, and that was taken primarily from non-biblical sources, but there is an aspect of propitiation that God needs to be appeased for the wrongs that we've committed. Those sacrifices function in that way, but they also function in, in dozens of other ways. Like the idea that in Jewish culture, they were an agrarian culture. So they were not, they did not build machines. They harvested vegetables and they cared for animals, So not only is it propitiatory, appeasing God for the things we've done wrong, paying back debts, so to speak, but it's also to say that, God, I'm going to give to you things that are of value to me because you are of more value to me. It's In a way, it's a way to push against our desire to worship other things other than God. So God says, I want you to give me the best of your cattle because that's really not your sustenance. I am. So it functions on that layer too. So what I'm going to try and do, and, and again, a number of other layers. So what's interesting is I really try and hold to what I would call an integrated view of the sacrifices because I don't want to preference one over the other. Like in, if you read classical theology, they very strongly preference the propitiatory aspects of it. The, because I've sinned, I need to give up a life in order to appease God's anger at my mistakes, right? But because... If you read theology, the pendulum always swings. Something's really popular and then it becomes, 
kind of passe, and then everyone gets into another thing, and another thing, and another thing. What I'm going to try and do, I'm going to try and bring them all in, because I think that if you really read it, and you look at it, God's word is deep. It's not monochrome. And so we're going to try and bring in all these different pieces as we go, given the different sacrifices. And so depending on if you've studied this before, you've probably heard primarily a monochrome view of it. Like all these things point to this thing. And I'm going to try and give you a more broad view because I think everyone's partially right. And ultimately, I know that all the sacrifices are fulfilled in Jesus. But how that actually works, the depth of the meaning behind it is way deeper. And so I want to try and get at a little bit of all of it rather than give you one specific view and drive that home all the way. Does that make sense? So I'm going to try and bring all that in as we go. So let's just jump right on in. Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to take what is commonly considered the introduction for this entire section, just the first two verses. It says, Now the Lord, verse 1, called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. Now, Right away at the beginning of the book, at now the Lord called to Moses. This reminds us once again of Moses' special appointment by God to be a mediator between himself and his people. Okay? He called to Moses from, notice where? The tent of meeting. Do you remember how the book of Exodus ended? chapter 40, where they finally put up this mobile worship tent and then the Spirit of God, that visible presence of God, filled that place. Showing that God put his hand, his, as it were, his his special blessing on it. His presence abided there. And so now God is speaking to Moses from that mobile worship tent. That's the place where he's abiding at this juncture. And the uniqueness of God's call to Moses reminds us that God is using Moses as a mediator between him and the people. And that's important, of course, because in the New Testament, we hear that there's one mediator between God and man who? The man Christ Jesus. So that shows that Jesus is the new and better Moses who mediates a more perfect covenant, a more abiding covenant. And Moses realizes that God's going to send somebody else because we're going to get that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, where he says, I'm going to raise up another prophet who you need to listen to. Hear him. So Moses knew that he was, in a way, a forerunner as a mediator. And the beauty is now is that because there's one mediator, you do not need another mediator. You don't need to go to a priest or a pastor. The new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 33 says that God will speak to all of us. He'll forgive all of us. I'll be honest, I love being a pastor here, but I don't have like the the red phone in my office that's the direct line to the Almighty. You guys ever hear that joke about about, uh, the head rabbi in Israel and and the Pope? This is a pastor joke, so I don't know if it's really, I'm sure this never happened. So, but it's a good joke and you'll get the joke. So, so, so the head rabbi in, in Jerusalem goes to, to uh, the Vatican and sees the Pope and he, and the, and there's a red phone there. Right? And, and, and the rabbi goes, ah, Pope, what's the red phone? He's like, if I want to talk to God, I just pick up the phone. Right? 
And so then the Pope comes to visit the, the chief rabbi in Jerusalem, and there's no red phone. And he's like, well, rabbi, where's your red phone? He's like, hey, it's a local call here. That's a pretty good joke, right? You, you, can, you can use that with your friends. Guess what? Because of Jesus, it's a local call for all of us. That's the application. No person has a special prayer line to God. We are all sinners saved by grace. You bow the knees of your heart and you say, God, I need your help. And guess what? He hears because he loves you and he's for you. And don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to ask somebody to pray, but don't think for one second that someone's got a closer line to God, because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So every single one of us, when you bow your head and bow your heart, and you speak to the Lord, he hears, no matter how messed up you are. Because I'm here to tell you, you got saved and you were messed up. You're still messed up, and God's doing a work in you, and God's not afraid of your mess. He embraces who you are at this moment, what he's doing, and don't think that because you messed up, God doesn't listen to you anymore. God adopted you knowing everything you were ever going to do. And me too. And God's grace, his sheer grace is so powerful that his love trumps all the stupid things we do. Every morning when you wake up, you say, I'm here, Lord. He'd be like, yeah, you are. And every morning when you go to bed, you're like, man, well, Lord, that was something, wasn't it? And be like, yeah, it was. And everything in between, just turn your heart to him and speak to him. The children of Israel had to go through Moses because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, his perfectly lived life, his sacrificial death on our behalf, his resurrection and ascension. If you don't know about any of that, come on Sunday. I'm going to talk about it from Ephesians. All of that means you just talk to God. Anybody who talks to the Lord in Jesus' name, God hears, he knows, and he loves to act. But we, we see here again Moses in his mediatorial role. Now, in verse 2, he says to them, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and the flock. Now, that word offering is interesting because in the Hebrew, it literally means something that is rising up. An offering, it means something that is being lifted up sacrificially. Something that is being surrendered. That's what it means. So when we think of bringing an offering, you have to bring it of, of the herd. So this kind of sets the stage for our first study, the one on the burnt offering, which is of the animals. Now, you'll see that there's also a provision for people who did not have domesticated animals. They could also bring uh, common birds and it's interesting because what it shows is that God is not as much interested in what the thing that is offered as he is in the desire to give, to surrender. So we have to realize that because, you know, we, we live in a day and age where you're like, well, I shouldn't tithe because I just don't have very much money, right? Or you say, why should I give because, like, I'm just, I don't have a lot. See, God's not as interested in the amount as he's interested in the heart that says, Lord, you are more important than this. I'm willing to surrender what I have. And that's why I love the fact that God doesn't, he's not like our government, which says if you make more, you should be taxed more. And if you make less, you should be taxed less. God says, look, I ask for a tenth as a standard from everybody. 
It's a flat tax in a way. It's not a tax though, because we don't give to get from God. We give because God has given everything to us. It's a grace-based giving. But that's why God doesn't say, well, listen, if you're doing great, then give more. And if you're not, then don't worry about it. He just leaves it there, wanting us to respond to his grace equally. And I remember when I was a brand new Christian and I got taken on staff at 500 bucks a month. And it was like, man, 50 bucks hurt out of that 500. But it was like, Lord, I have a job because you've given it to me. And then as you make more, you're like, well, it's the same percentage and it hurts the same way. But it doesn't hurt because God is God. And the only reason I have a job is because God has given me breath in my lungs and a beating heart and some semblance of skills. So either way, that idea of we're just giving it up, we're giving it away, we're offering it up as a surrender unto the Lord. And so that's what an offering is. And of course, it makes you think of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. See, each one of us comes as living sacrifices to the Lord. We say, Lord, I give you me. I give you the self that I've come up with. I give that to you. And as a living sacrifice, I mean, talk about a paradox. Because you come, you say, Lord, I give you me. And then he gives us back us, but better, his version of us, not our own version of us. And I love it, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some of your translations say your spiritual acts of service or your, your spiritual worship. The idea is that because of what God has done for us, giving him ourselves, it's a reasonable response. Given God's grace, giving him ourselves is like, well, Lord, you did everything. You're just asking for my life. To the church in Corinth, Paul said, of course, do you not realize that you are not your own? You were bought at a price. And that's one of our biggest struggles, isn't it? This side of eternity is that we know that we've been bought by Jesus, but we want to be our own owner operator, even though we gave our lives to Jesus. So Jesus is saying, look, you're mine and I want to, I want to administer you to the world a certain way. And we say, well, Lord, I really have my own plan. I have a good plan for how I want to be administered to the world. But really, we don't have control if Jesus is Lord. We don't have control over how God uses us. We have to come and say, Lord, it's all yours. I'm yours. What do you want to do? You know what happens when you give that to the Lord? God does crazy stuff. That's what happens. And that's why we don't really do it, right? Because we think that if I do that, God's going to revolutionize everything. And I'm here to tell you, he absolutely will. It doesn't mean he's going to give you a new job. He might give you a new you at your job. It doesn't mean that he's going to, you hate bugs, he's going to send you to the most bug-infested place in the world. Because God's not mean that way. But if he wants to send you to the most bug-infested place in the world, he's first going to give you a great love of bugs. But the only way that happens is if you say, Lord, my life is yours. I'm a living sacrifice. I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. Jesus is real. If you're like me, you forget things all the time. Well, here's Pastor Daniel with something that will help you remember. 
Hey everyone, Pastor Daniel here. I don't know about you, but life is busy and it's so easy to forget things. Now, thankfully, I have a couple of wonderful ladies in my life that join me in helping to accomplish all that God has called me to. Of course, I think of my beautiful bride, Lynn. She keeps me on track in so many ways. And then of course, there's my ministry assistant, Margaret, here at Crossroads. She helps me to make sure that my schedule in the ministry is running smoothly. Now, I love how God uses these ladies and so many other people to help remind me of what's important. One of the easiest things to forget isn't daily things like the schedule. It's actually the most important thing. It's the fact that God is real and he is in heaven and he is with me all the time, wherever I go. It may sound silly, but I started wearing a bracelet that says real on it. This bracelet is a constant reminder to me that Jesus is real and that God's grace is real and his mercy and his love has been poured out into my life. And I wanna make this this bracelet available to you as well. Here's Josh with some information about how you can get your very own real bracelet. Thanks, Pastor Daniel. To receive your very own real bracelet, check out JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on Partner. These handcrafted leather bracelets are available to anyone who supports Jesus Is Real Radio through the month of January with a gift of $20 or more. Again, to receive your very own real bracelet, log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on Partner. Again, that's JesusIsRealRadio.com. Please join us again for another edition of Jesus Is Real Radio.